0: I don't know if you're familiar with the Gucci feud. For a while, this Italian fashion icon was a textbook example for how to do first to second generation succession. The founding patriarch, Guccio Gucci, started his company in Florence in the early 20th century. He built the business by launching his line of quality luggage and handbags. When Guccio died in 1953, the business was left to Aldo, the oldest of the three sons. Aldo quickly expanded the business to the major markets outside of Italy. This soon made Gucci an international name in fashion. President John F. Kennedy even referred to Aldo Gucci as the first ambassador of fashion. The Gucci's are an example of how without a clear direction for the future of the company, problems can arise when next generation harbors conflicting ambitions. In this case, Aldo's son, Paolo, wanted to launch a new fashion line. When his father and uncle shot down the idea, he launched it behind their backs. He was fired and exiled from the family business. Paolo would seek his revenge by exposing Aldo, his father's, tax issues, which saw him eventually serve a year in federal prison for tax evasion. In time, Paolo and his cousin, Maurizio, Would team up to take over the Gucci business. But without a clear plan, the cousins nearly ran the business aground. Paolo launched another disastrous fashion line, and when Maurizio had sole control of the company, Gucci had a negative net worth of 17.3 million. With more than 40 million in personal debt, Maurizio was finally forced out of the company by the board. The Gucci story could be a case study in how key failures in both the business aspect and family life led to a tragic outcome which no one wanted. In the same way, families and friendships have dysfunctions and are messy because those involved, whether as parents, children, relatives, or friends, fail to address certain issues or they fail to do certain things that allow sin to fester and circumstances to get out of hand that eventually destroys families and relationships. As we continue our home series, we want to pick up where we last left off, with a heartwarming reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. You know, someone asked me last week, Pastor, this is the end of the series because we ended happily ever after. I said, no, there are three more weeks. And he thought, oh, I thought it would be the end. I said, why would you think that in living in this sinful world, that things would end so happily? In fact, life goes on, and there are a lot of things that will still happen. So let's continue to explore the life of Jacob to see how his life ends. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Genesis 33, as we pick up in verse 18, and we go all the way to the end of chapter 34. We're going to be looking at failures and failings in the story of Jacob's family. And we want to identify five failures that we can avoid or try to avoid as families or as individuals so that we will not allow dysfunction to ruin our family relationships and our friendships. Let's learn from the mistake of Jacob's family. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 33, looking now at verses 18 to 20. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. After reconciling with his brother Esau, after being gone twenty years from his homeland of Canaan, Jacob now settles back home. He decides to situate himself near the Canaanite city of Shechem, where he purchases land. He renames the place El Elohi Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. And it seems like all is well. As people believing in the one true God, Yahweh, since the time of his grandfather, Abraham, the descendants of Abraham have kept their distance and maintained their distinctiveness by avoiding the pagan-worshipping Canaanites. Yes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived amongst the pagan people, but they were not to deeply associate with them, lest their pagan influence rubbed off on their family. And if you want to see that happening, you can look at the life of the family of Esau. But look what happens, chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, went out to hang out with the women of Canaan. Now we don't know the full context for her going out alone, but the details of her going out to hang out with the Canaanite women would be a harbinger of something tragic that would happen. Look at verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, Prince of the country saw her. He took her and lay with her and violated her. The Bible tells us that Shechem, the prince of the country with the same name as the city Shechem where Jacob settled saw Dinah and he lusted after her and tragically he acted out on his lust and he raped her. It was a terrible tragedy. Now a couple questions come to mind. Where were her male chaperones? What is she doing all alone with the people she shouldn't have been hanging out with? What were the circumstances that allowed this tragedy to occur? Was she taken by force? The Bible doesn't give us these details. The Bible doesn't tell us. Of course, there's absolutely no justification for sexual assault, for rape. But what I see here is a failure on the part of Jacob to set proper boundaries for his family as they settled now in the land of Canaan. I'm not saying that boundaries would be a guarantee that nothing as heinous as rape would have occurred, but perhaps it could have been prevented. I know that in social media now, there is a debate amongst the young people currently triggered by the thought that in the case of sexual assault on women, such as rape, a contributing factor is the kind of clothes worn, especially by women, that perhaps the provocative nature of certain clothing invited the assault. That is the debate today. As I've said before, there's absolutely no justification for rape or sexual assault of any type. The fault for such an act lies solely on the perpetrator. But that being said, there is a saying. One ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Perhaps setting up some personal boundaries such as wearing clothes more modestly or going out in a group or having companionship or avoiding unsafe places or going out beyond a certain hour would minimize the chances of getting into a terrible situation. It's only common sense if you are travel savvy that you avoid certain parts of any given city or you avoid walking around a a city during a certain part of the day. But again, if something happens, it is completely the fault of the perpetrator. But you cannot help others from asking or saying, what were you doing in that area? Why were you there during the time of that day? I look at what has transpired and I see Jacob as a father who has failed to set up some proper boundaries for his family as they were to relate to the Canaanites. Where were the rules that he should have set to protect his family, especially his only daughter? Perhaps he should not have allowed her to leave without a companion. Perhaps to go with one of her brothers or a servant to protect her, as was common in the day. Now, we don't know why, but whatever the case I think it is important for us to understand that here, number one, is a failure to set boundaries. A failure to set boundaries. And this is one of the failures that leads to family dysfunctions and family messiness. The failure to set boundaries. I know I sound like a parent. And I, myself, when I was young, I used to hate hearing all of the rules my parents set up for me. Rules such as what time I needed to come home. Rules that stated the friends whose house I could go to. The rules that stipulated the television shows I could watch. The computer games I could play. The time I had to go to bed. The musical instruments I had to learn to play. And the hours I had to practice on the musical instruments I had to play. The things I should and should not eat. Lots of rules and I hated them. And when I would complain, they would say, our house, our rules. And if you can own your own house, then you can move out and have your own rules. But I was poor at the age of 16, and I couldn't do much about it. I thought they were imposing on my life. I thought they were cramping my style. The rules were so many, and it was stifling. Why couldn't they give me more freedom, I thought, like all my other American friends had? But now, fast forward a few decades, as a parent myself, I realize now that those rules that my parents had set up were really boundaries that they were establishing to protect me, wanting the best for me, and so that I would keep well because they loved me. I was their child and they loved me deeply. And the boundaries they set up as loving parents for, admittedly, a rebellious child was to ensure that I did not hurt myself or get into any sticky situation that would be detrimental in my own life. You know, even in the Song of Solomon, which we did a sermon series a while back on, we talk about the fact that the two lovers in this story, when they began the relationship There was a lot of pent-up passion and raging hormones that were very much evident in their relationship. But early on, it was the man who set up the boundary that stated that sex and intimacy are to be expressed only in the beauty of the marriage relationship. And so while their passion and their love for each other grew, they realized that they need to save the full expression of their love in sex and intimacy, to be enjoyed as God's gift for them in the bounds of marriage. This was the boundaries that they had set up for themselves so that they would not fall into sexual temptation prior to marriage. So what are the boundaries you have set up for yourself, for your families? What are the boundaries you have set up for your children and between your friends These boundaries can be as simple as you telling your children that they are not to have more than two hours of screen time, especially if they are young, per day. Or if you have children of working age who are still living with you, that there is an expectation that they contribute to the household expense, and they are also obliged to do chores. That's also setting boundaries in your family relationship, especially if your children are older. Or perhaps the boundary that you set up between spouses is that each spouse knows the other's passwords and they are free to check on each other's phones at any time. Or perhaps if you are not yet married but you are in a relationship that the boundary you set up is that you will not ever let anyone pressure you to have sexual intimacy before marriage. Or amongst friends and families that you set up the boundary where you will not lend money that is beyond any amount that you know will destroy your relationship if that amount is not paid back. Lots of boundaries we need to set up to protect our families and to protect our friendships. Failure to do so invariably will lead to a very messy life and to lots of dysfunction. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. The Bible tells us that even though he raped her, Shechem had very strong feelings for Dinah and wanted to marry her. So he asked his father Hamor, to get Dinah as his wife. To our surprise, it is not written that Hamor reprimanded his son for doing such a heinous act. In fact, there is not a word of condemnation as if rape was okay and allowed. Right here is a classic case of failure to take right action. And that's our second failure, number two. Failure to take the right action. Failure to take the right action. Notice I didn't say the failure of inaction, but the failure to take the right action. Because inaction can sometimes be the right action. But the failure is not doing the right thing, whether it be inaction or not. Like Hamor, many parents become blindsided in their love for their children. And so they fail to take the action that is needed to correct or to rebuke. Not only do they not model what they want their children to be, but parents are afraid to do what's needed because they're trying to be their children's best friend. Or they are afraid that their children will not like them anymore. When this happens, it is a failure of parenting. You see, parents sometimes forget that the hardest expression of love is sometimes to discipline your children to the point of cutting them off and not enabling their destructive behaviors. This would be the right action, as hard as it may be. For example, if your child keeps lying, stealing, womanizing, and physically abusing people and is thrown into jail, would you always come and bail them out every time? What would be the right action? The right action, as tough as it may be, maybe to let them sit in jail and experience the consequences of their destructive actions, but are we as loving parents willing to allow our children to go through it? Or if you tell your child that you will take away their gadgets and devices for the weekend if they continue to disrespect you or not help around the home, how many of you brave parents will actually really do that? even if your children screams and yells that you are committing child abuse by taking away their Wi-Fi or their gadgets. Hamor should have called out his son for raping another woman. He should have instructed his son Shechem to quickly return Dinah back home. But instead, he is going to help his son find a wife in Dinah the failure to take the right action. But he's not alone as a father not to do the right thing. Look at verse 5. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now we have Jacob, the father of Dinah, who when he heard of this terrible incident, we don't find out how he hears about it, But surprisingly, we are told, he does nothing. He doesn't take the natural action that most fathers would take when they find out something has happened to their daughter. He doesn't become incensed. He does not become angry. He doesn't immediately call for his daughter to be returned back immediately. He doesn't ask that his sons quickly come back from the fields, taking care of the flocks, help rescue their sister, somehow in his desire to keep the peace with his new neighbors, he doesn't come to the defense of his daughter Dinah. He didn't take the initiative of what a father should do to protect their children. He didn't take the leadership to comfort or to assuage the hurt and anger that for sure, his children would have felt to seek for a remedy to this very terrible situation. The Bible tells us when he heard about it, he waited. He held his peace until they came. Sadly, he didn't see it as such a big issue. One could call him an uninvolved father. But the consequences of his inaction the consequences of him not doing the right thing will begin the spiraling down of the events. Look at verses 6 to 7. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. When Hamor came to speak to Jacob to try to get Dinah, as his son's wife, when the news had traveled to Jacob's 11 sons, they quickly rushed back home, probably to ask dad what they would do. They were displaying the right type of emotion consistent with the crime. They were described in the Bible as being very grieved and very angry. This is the right response on hearing such a terrible news in stark contrast to their father who seemed to be very passive and didn't desire to do right or what needed to be done. Imagine, would you allow your daughter to be married to the man who raped her? Even in their cultural context of a male-dominated society, it would almost be unthinkable. But in the absence of leadership in doing what needed to be done, Someone will always step up to fill the vacuum. And in this case, it would be the sons of Jacob because of their fathers in action. And it will not go well as we shall soon see. Don't think that the failure to do the right action or the right thing simply means that it will go well with you or you won't be involved. In the absence of leadership and right action... Things will still happen, but it may not be as you like them to be. For example, if you ignore bullying or the signs of it, to the point where a child has to be hospitalized, and you say insensitive things like, just ignore them, the bullies will go away, or blaming your child for possibly provoking the bullies, the bullied child may act out in ways you didn't like, when they have had enough. The Bible is replete with verses that tell us that we're always to do the right thing. James chapter 4 verse 17 says this, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The Bible is so clear, do the right thing, especially when you know it is the right thing to do. Look also at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You've got to do the right thing, the Bible says. And families are in dysfunction because parents often fail to do the right thing. Children can also contribute to dysfunction in their families when they fail to do the right things. Friendships are messy and they are torn apart when friends fail to do the right thing. Let us avoid the failure to take the right action by doing what needs to be done when it is called for. Look at verses 8 to 12. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. Hamor proposes marriage between his son Shechem and Dinah, and says to Jacob and his sons who are there, that it would be beneficial if their two families intermarried and mixed with each other. Shechem added that he would give whatever they wanted as a dowry, as a gift for the hand of Dinah. It is interesting that in this conversation, the issue of Dinah's rape never comes up. The starting point of Hamor's conversation is my son really loves and desires your daughter. Perhaps he doesn't know that Jacob and his 11 sons know about this tragedy because Jacob and his family find out from other sources, not officially in the form of an apology. Regardless of who knew what and when, There is no apology. There is no recognition that wrong has been done. It is a big cover-up, it seems. There is deception here. It is simply, number three, a failure to tell the truth. A failure to tell the truth. And we know what happens when the truth is not told. When lies and deceit abound, it often doesn't go well. That is why there is an old saying, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It is a quotation by Sir Walter Scott. It means that when you tell lies or act in dishonest ways, you will create problems and complications which you cannot control. The Bible is so clear about telling the truth. Look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal truthfully are his delight. Again, the Bible is so very clear about telling the truth. But sadly, both sides here practice deceit and lies. Look at verse 13 to verse 17. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor's father, and note this, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us. And we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Notice that absentee father Jacob, again, doesn't seem to be involved in these negotiations or takes the lead in these discussions. It is the sons of Jacob that speak. Jacob is nowhere to be found nor making his voice heard, especially when his leadership is needed, especially at this time. Notice in verse 13, the writer of Genesis notes that the sons speak deceitfully. And their justification in their mind is because their sister has been sexually assaulted. In their minds, we are able to lie to this other side. It's justified. Because their father doesn't seem to take any action. And we want to exact revenge in righteous anger on this terrible act. So they propose that each man of Shechem circumcise themselves before they would allow their sister Dinah to be married to Prince Shechem. This circumcision by all the males will allow us to become one people, they propose. Verse 16 tells us that. Again, Jacob is silent or absent. But this agreement would never be according to God's will the coming together of two very different peoples. One group who believed in the living God, Yahweh, and the other group believing in the false gods of Canaan. To be one people, God would never allow it. Jacob would have known better. Many times God appeared to him and showed him to be the one true God. But Jacob was absent. Deceit was evident in this Proposal of a covenant between Jacob's sons and Shechem and his father. You know, the sons could have said, you need to make it up in other ways. We cannot be a people together, especially after what you've done. But we can live peacefully. But the failure on both sides to tell the truth will now spiral out of control. Look at verses 18 and 19. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Hamor and his son Shechem thought this was a good deal so they entered into a covenant based on deceit or a failure to tell the truth. Notice how the Bible describes Shechem as the most honorable in all the household of his father. Can you imagine that? It's a bit of sarcasm, I believe. Most honorable for raping someone? Whatever the justification? More honorable because now he wants to marry the woman he raped? I think this is on commentary on Hamor and his family and the people of the city. How conniving and bad they were. If Shechem is the model child for honor. And we will see that this is true in terms of their characterization. Look at verses 20 to 24. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let us dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." Hamor tells his people that all the males need to be circumcised for the two people groups to join together. Now comes the real motive of why Hamor is amenable and agrees to the covenant that Jacob's sons offer. Hamor isn't innocent in all of this. He saw this as a way that he could take advantage of Jacob's family. He saw it as an advantage to him that If Jacob's family were to mix with his people, that as they intermingled, that Jacob's livestock and properties and possessions would eventually become his and theirs because they outnumbered Jacob and his family. There is a failure to tell the truth. There is deceit on the part of Hamor and the Canaanites. And they too will greatly suffer for this. Because the circumstances caused by lies and deceit will always turn out bad. And it will begin to continue to spiral out of control. What does the Bible teach about truth? The Bible is very clear. Always speak the truth. Don't have hidden agendas. Don't have hidden motives. It's as simple as that. Speak the truth in love. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. Because at the end of the day, all will come out anyways. Truth will come out in this life or the next. Look what Luke chapter 8, verse 17 says. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Failure to tell the truth will lead to family dysfunctions. It is a given. I've seen it all too often in families. When there are lies, when there are secrets, when there are deception... Dysfunction will be there. When parents keep secrets to the extent of lying to their children, thinking, oh, our children won't understand anyways, and then the children find out, they will lose trust in their parents. Or perhaps they will find out, and they won't tell their parents that they know. And as they process it themselves, they will get more and more angry at their parents for being deceptive towards them it is always more important to be up front with your children, especially if you think they may be too young. In our generation, our children are losing their innocence at a much younger age. They are more self-aware of the things that are happening around the world and even in their families. They are aware when something is off. It's to your benefit and advantage that you tell the truth. Age appropriate, of course, but you tell the truth to your children. Never lie to them. And this goes without saying as it relates to friends, as it relates to employers and employees, as it relates to children with their parents. It is always more beneficial for friends not to lie to each other, for children to always tell the parents the truth, for employers never to lie to their employees, and for the employees to always tell the truth. We need to cultivate an environment where truth is freely spoken and cultivated. Even if it hurts, when it is done in love, it will always only be beneficial. If you have a family culture where you are afraid to speak the truth, thinking bad things will happen if you tell the truth, know that worse things will often happen when you don't tell the truth as we will now see. Verse 25 to 29. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. While the men of the city were recovering from the pain of having gone through the circumcision procedure, Simeon and Levi, two sons of Jacob, who had the same mother as Dinah, came and killed all the male in the city. They had been holding up their pent-up anger. And in their failure to control their emotions, they killed all the men of the city. And then the other nine sons of Jacob also came and plundered the city. And look at their reasoning, verse 27, because their sister had been raped that's how they justified their actions and so they took everything in the city what you see here number four is a failure to control their emotions a failure to control emotions how many times have you said words that you wish you could take back how many times have you screamed at a loved one i hate you i don't love you anymore How many times in your rage or anger did you take action that you came to regret? And while you knew that those angry words and those hurtful actions because of your failure to control your emotions hurt the other person or family member and you regret it, the pride of your own heart often makes it very difficult to apologize simply because we have justified it In our minds. If these 11 sons of Jacob had any regret in what they did, they simply justified it by saying, Look, they did this to our sister. And perhaps they would add, And our father did nothing. We had to come and rescue our sister. Our father made no effort to come and retrieve her. Emotions like love, lust, Sin, hatred, envy, jealousy are root causes of family dysfunctions when we fail to control them. That's how all of this started in the first place, when Prince Shechem raped Dinah, lust uncontrolled. And we can control our emotions with the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there is almost an entire chapter in the Bible that is dedicated to allowing the Holy Spirit To control our emotions. Look at Galatians chapter 5 as I read from verses 16 to 24. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. When we fail to control our emotions it leads to family dysfunctions. When we allow with the Spirit's help our ability to control and act upon our passions and emotions, then we can minimize messy life situations and we can avoid regretting things we say and we do by never saying them to begin with or doing them at all. Look at verses 30 to 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? After this mayhem, Jacob reprimands Simeon and Levi. And Look at his rebuke, which shows you Jacob's heart. Jacob is more troubled that he will not be liked by his Canaanite neighbors than about the fact that his two sons have killed lots of people. He is more worried how he will be treated by his neighbors than the fact that his sons did what he was unwilling to do, which was to take action for the rape of his daughter. He was more concerned about his own welfare than about his 11 sons plundering an entire city. Simeon and Levi, in their statement to Jacob, rebuked Jacob in a way by saying to their dad, because you didn't do anything, we had to do what we needed to do. They were implying, you should have led the family in our moment of crisis, but you did not. What you have here, number five, is a failure to identify confused priorities. A failure to identify confused priorities. Jacob's primary focus should have been about his family and their welfare. But his priority was about maintaining a good relationship with his neighbors. His priority was about his own reputation amongst his neighbors. We are no different in our Chinese-Asian culture, and we're guilty of this, our confused priorities. We care more about protecting our reputation than our need to discipline. We care more about what someone else thinks about our family than doing the right thing or telling the truth. We care more about hiding things so that people don't find out Or sweeping it under the rug versus doing what is right and speaking truth. If there's a tragedy or a scandal in our family, instead of dealing with the problem, we are more concerned and worried about people finding out or worried what my friends will think versus trying to sort it all out, work it out, to come to reconciliation or to try to comfort those who have been deeply hurt. You see, if we never admit our problems or say that the problem is because of me, then there will always be dysfunction because of the failure to identify confused priorities. Now, no one ever said that Jacob was perfect, far from it, but his priorities were definitely in the wrong place. What is our priorities? Well, the Bible is very clear. Matthew 6:33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, shall be added to you. And then Luke continues. Luke chapter 12, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible is very clear. The priority of our life is to glorify God, to honor Him, to honor Him in the way we live. Because where our priorities are, there our heart will be, the Bible tells us. And so if our priorities are in the right place, then all will come out and turn out well. And if we have been given the gift of families, which God has graciously given us, then it is up to each member of the family to seek for a family that honors God. A Christ-honoring, God-fearing home is what should be developed what should be cultivated, what every family member should be working for, not for a perfect family, but for a family that demonstrates Christ-likeness, for a family that honors God in their action. That should be the priority that drives what we do. It is when families confuse that and think that a perfect reputation Is what is needed that will begin to lead towards the road of dysfunction and destruction. I've said it many times, no family is perfect. Trying to maintain an illusion of perfectness will only drive your family towards imperfection and dysfunction. But if everyone acknowledges that the priority is to honor God with the way we treat each other and with the way our family interacts with one another, then, and only then, will our families be healthy and God will be honored. In James Dobson's book, Love Must Be Tough, he tells of the grave impact that is occurring as families continue to disintegrate and as messiness and dysfunction continue to pervade families across the world. He writes this in his book. The most vulnerable victims of family instability are the children who are too young to understand what has happened to their parents. This tragic impact on the next generation was graphically illustrated to me, as he writes, in a recent conversation with a sixth-grade teacher in an upper-middle-class California city. She was shocked to see the results of a creative writing task assigned to her students. They were asked to complete the sentence that began with the words, I wish... The teacher expected the boys and the girls to express wishes for bicycles, dogs, television sets, and trips to Hawaii. Instead, 20 of the 30 children in her class made reference in their responses to their own dysfunctional, disintegrating families. A few of their actual sentences were as follows. I wish my parents wouldn't fight, and I wish my father would come back. I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my father would love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad so the children wouldn't make fun of me. I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot all those who make fun of me. We need to avoid the failures and the failings that are exemplified in this part of Jacob's life. So that as we learn from others' failures, we can also rid our families of the dysfunctions that have lasting consequences. You know, as parents, even as children, as members of a family unit, all of us have responsibilities to work towards getting rid of the dysfunctions in our homes. It's a mutual shared responsibility. But so many of us fail and even though we know we fail in certain areas we make no effort to try to remedy those situations. These five areas of failures left unaddressed will tear apart the very fabric of our families. And so it is important my friends that families have boundaries both for the individual and for the family unit it's important to always take the right action. Even if that action is very difficult, even if that action requires temporary dislike for one another, as a parent may have to garner the dislike of their child to enact discipline. But knowing that it is the right action, we need to tell the truth always. It's as simple as that. But truth and a culture and a community and an environment where truth is celebrated should permeate every family unit and every friendship group. We need to be able to control our emotions. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts so that even though we get angry, the expressions of that anger are controlled. So we don't say anything or do anything we will live to regret. And we need to make sure that our priorities are in the right place. That our lives and our family units are there to honor God. It's when we worry so much about what other people think, about our own reputation, that it will begin to destroy the very family we're trying to protect. These are tough lessons. These are challenging things to do. But with the help Of the Holy Spirit We can do it Let's pray Father thank you for Chapters like this in the Bible Which give us a glimpse Into the messiness Of a family's life As a third party observer We are all saying We could have done better We would have done this Instead of that But yet we look at our own lives and we look at our own family lives and we realize it's not as easy as we say it is. There are so many areas that we need to correct. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us examine our family lives and see if there are any failings. And in the areas of our failures, we ask for your forgiveness and ask for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. To help us right the wrongs, to avoid these failures, and to live out our lives in such a way that we glorify you in our role as a parent, in our role as children, in our role as friends, in our role as employers, in our role as an employee, whatever the case may it be that our lives are lived for the glory of your name. Challenge us, rebuke us, correct us, encourage us. May you teach us the lessons we are to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.